Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You know, last week we, we did a big chunk of 1 Peter, uh, 10, 15 verses. Now we're going to like put the microscope together. We're going to look into the microscope at just two verses. And sometimes this is really important because of the impactful nature of the verses that we, that we look at. And this is one of those cases. These are, these are really, really important verses uh, for all of us. And so let me just give you kind of a summary of where we've been so far with the book of, of 1 Peter. The opening theme in 1 Peter is of a transformed identity. And what Peter has said is that we are resident aliens under God's eternal care, endowed with the potential for power. That's the opening theme of, of 1 Peter. We are citizens of heaven. We have a new identity. In, in the past, we have been under God's eternal care. He chose us. And uh, in the present and future, we have the potential for power. So what Peter wants to do is he wants to apply that theme in six concentric circles in 1 Peter. Uh, he applied it first to God. Josh did a great message on that. If you haven't heard that, it's a fantastic message on holiness. Then he applied it to believers, and we looked at that this past week. And now he begins to apply it to the world. And so with, starting with 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, it begins to apply the theme of our transformed identity to the world. And so the idea in 1 Peter is that we would take this transformed identity and apply it systematically throughout our life with grit because we're going to encounter pushback and suffering and with grace because we have the power of God to endure. And so we've entitled 1 Peter, True Grit, Applying Our Identity uh, in Every Area of Our Life. And so what we do this morning is we talk about how do you live the kind of life that attracts people to Jesus? Well, uh, when Cindy and I moved to Baltimore many years ago, we had this amazing neighborhood. And right in the middle of the neighborhood was a neighborhood pool. And we decided that we were going to join the pool and immerse ourselves in the life of the pool. So Saturday mornings, every Saturday morning, we had, we had swim meets. Every Saturday afternoon, we had meetups at the pool. We were at the pool literally seven days a week. Well, we were very intentional uh, about, about being there as followers of Jesus who were going to represent him in that place. We were not the Christian, perfect Christian family by any stretch. We were certainly not the perfect Christian couple at all. But God was doing something very special in our lives in those years. And so we developed tremendous relationships. At the end of the first year, I was asked to be the treasurer of the pool. At the end of the second year, I was asked to be the president of the, of the club. And I just loved every minute of it. And we gained opportunities to talk to people very casually about faith in Christ. Uh, i never forget one conversation we had with a Jewish doctor who had been deeply hurt by organized religion in the past. And he said, I, this is the first time I've shared these things with anybody. There was a trust and a vulnerability that had been built because of the relationships we sustained. Now, there was another couple at the pool. They too were followers of Christ. They had a very different way of thinking about representing Christ in that place. It was combative. It was argumentative. 
and it was filled with pressure. And one day I got to the pool, our kids were in tow, and I sat down next to the wife of this couple, and she said, if Melinda tells me about Jesus one more time, I think I'm going to scream. She was not moving toward Christ. She was moving away from Christ. Now, what was the difference in the philosophy? Cindy and I had one philosophy. They had another philosophy. What was the difference in the philosophy? Well, I could express it this way. The farther people are from Christ, the more they need to experience the culture of Christ before they're receptive to the claims of Christ. So if somebody is very, very far from Christ, they need to encounter something of the grace, truth, culture of Jesus before they become receptive to the claims of Christ. This Jewish doctor, I mean, he had been hurt in the past. He needed to see that Christianity was different from what he had encountered in the past. And so our goal was to live out the culture of Jesus before the people at the club because some of them were really far from Christ and some edged very close to Jesus during the time that we were, we were there. We had, some, we had some tremendous open doors. The Christians reading 1 Peter needed to follow the same pattern. And the reason why is that they were living all over Asia Minor, all over what is today modern-day Turkey. And they were beginning to suffer the persecutions of Nero. It wasn't quite happening yet, but it was beginning. And they needed to express the culture of Christ within their communities, even as they were beginning to invite people to consider the claims of Christ. And so the question that these two verses really seem to ask is this, how do I live out my faith in Jesus in such a way that people want to hear my story and respond to the good news? And so Peter gives two commands and a result. Two commands and a result. Two verses, two commands and a result. We'll look at the first command, the second command, and then we'll look at, at the result. And so here are the verses. We're getting our microscope out to dig deep into these two. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's take a look at, at the first command. And command number one is to abstain from fleshly lusts. And the question that we have to ask is why? Why should we do this? If we're going to see people far from Christ come to Christ, why is it important that we abstain from, from fleshly lusts? Well, Peter gives us some motivations. And the first motivation is that it's best for us. Like it's good for us if we abstain from fleshly lusts because they wage war against your soul. I want you to think about this for, for a second. The fleshly lusts refer, refer to the habit patterns within your fallen nature. Anybody have any? I have some. I have some. I have some fleshly lusts that I can easily identify. I'm working on them. When he talks about fleshly lusts, he's saying they wage war against your soul. Now, a lot of people think about the soul. They think, well, that's just my inner life. Like, I'm not going to hurt anybody if I do these 
fleshly lusts. Nobody will, nobody will know about them. They just wage war against one part of me, my soul. And so, like, what's the big deal? But remember, Peter is thinking not like modern Americans. He's thinking like a Hebrew. And to the Hebrew, the soul referred to the totality of the self. My mind, my emotions, my will, my body, my spirit, my choices, all of me. My soul even extends outward and my soul connects relationally to people that I, I, I'm in community with. My soul is the totality of who I am. So what Peter says is that I should abstain from fleshly lusts because they wage war against the totality of myself. It's very easy to say, no big deal. I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody's even going to know. But Peter says, no, that's not the way it works. The way it works is that you are a mind-body unity. You are a soul, and your soul gets, gets embattled when you begin to encounter and give in to fleshly lust. I've been, been reading some novels about World War II and specifically what happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. And um, I've, I haven't really intended to be reading all these novels, but people will recommend these things to me and they, they say, this is a really good one. And so I start reading these things. And I think about the war that was, that was waged against particularly children in the Holocaust. Horrible. And now he's saying you have internal fleshly lust that wage war against the totality of yourself. That's something to pay attention to. So um, why is this important if you want to see people come to Christ? The reason why is you're, if, you're, if your life is moving toward a place uh, where you have these out-of-control habits and your life is not going well, it's not going to attract people to Jesus. They're going to look at you and go, I'm not sure I want that kind of a life. People are attracted to somebody who is encountering healing from sins and habits. They're attracted to people who are in a transformative process. They're attracted to people who give them hope that there is a better way. They're attracted to people who are growing. And so if you're going to see, live the kind of life that people are attracted to, that means that you are dealing with those fleshly lusts. Now, Peter gives us a second motivation from abstaining from fleshly lusts, and that is we're going to represent the body of Christ well. We're going to represent the body of Christ well. He introduces this section with the word beloved. Now, I love that. I love that because when I think about writing to my family, I want to express love. When I have written thank you notes to really good friends, I want to express my love, my unconditional regard, my unconditional esteem. Peter has that same sense. He's saying, guys, I love you. I love you. I want what's best for the unity of the body there in northern Asia Minor. I love you guys. So when fleshly lusts begin to dominate a marriage, a small group, a local church, a Christian community, what happens to the non-believers? What do the non-believers do? They say, I don't want to be part of that. I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to be part of a, a group that is at odds with each other and sharply critical all the time and sniping against each other. You know, I, I, I crave 
unity and closeness and friendships. Here's, here's what Jesus said about this. John 17, verse 20. This is the upper room. Uh, this is the prayer that he gives before he is arrested. I do not ask for these only, these 12, but also for those who will come to believe in me through their word. That would be you. <laughs> you are people who've come to believe in Christ in 2019. You're here in 2019 through, through Christ's word. That they may all be one. That would directly apply to all of us here. He is praying for you back 2,000 years ago for what you would encounter today. Father, uh, in me, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How is the world going to believe that Jesus is real and that he came to earth to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead? If believers have unity, that attracts a watching world to the Christian faith. And so Peter is saying, if you want to see people, you know, be attracted to Christ, they need to, they need to see it, they need to see unity in, in the body. They need to see that it's, it's well with us in our relationships with others. I've talked to some couples recently who have been at, in a bad place in their marriage. That bad place was at a standstill. It was at a roadblock. It was trending in a bad, even worse place. And they got help. They reconciled. They got some unity. That unity turned into a deep love. And guess what that did for the adult children of that couple? Guess what it did? It made them think, mom and dad, what's happened to you guys? Well, we, we've, we've encountered a an experience with Jesus that's brought us back together, some skills that have brought us into a better relationship. And what, is, what does that do to the adult children? It draws them toward mom and dad because unity draws people to the source of that unity, which is, which is, is, is Christ. And so now we move to a third motivation that he, he gives. It's good for us. It's good for the relationships in the body of Christ, and it's consistent with our new identity. He goes back to this identity that he talks about at the very beginning of 1 Peter, where he says that we're sojourners and exiles. Remember I said the theme is, in 1 Peter is, we are resident aliens under God's eternal care with the potential for multiplied power. So he's appealing to us on the basis of our identity as citizens of heaven. If I'm a citizen of heaven, I have power, I have an identity that gives me the strength to do things I would not otherwise have the identity to do. So um, is kingdom power flowing through me as a, as a follower of Christ? Are people seeing the Holy Spirit in my life? Are they seeing that I'm walking in an abiding relationship with Jesus? See, abstaining from fleshly lusts means that I'm sensing my new identity as a person of the kingdom, and I'm living out of that kingdom mindset. This world is important, but it's not the whole show. It's not the whole show. The whole show is that I'm an exile here. I'm going there. My true identity is there. And right now, I'm living heaven's power on earth. Are people seeing that? If people are seeing that, people may, may be saying, okay, there's something different about you, something that I'm, I'm attracted to. I want to 
I want to know more. So let's pull these, these details together. Um, when we abstain from fleshly lusts for the right reasons, people are going to see something different in our life. They're going to see us in the process of being transformed. Now, let me tell you what I'm, what I'm most emphatically not saying. Um, I'm not saying that it's, this is perfectionism. I'm not saying this is try hard, moralistic, legalistic Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. And it would be easy to read these verses and go, okay, I got to try so much harder because I'm not doing it. I'm giving in to my fleshly lusts. No, he's appealing to us on the basis of our identity, on the basis of power, on the basis of unity. He's, he's appealing to us not on the basis of try hard, legalistic, moralistic Christianity. Positively, what he's, what he's saying is this is encountering spirit-filled transformation in the context of community. Beloved, he says, community. You've got the community of, of believers in, in Christ who can also help you with this. And that's why one of the reasons why I say the, one of the best places to learn to do this is in Celebrate Recovery. I've, I've had many people over the years tell me, you know, the church ought to be like Alcoholics Anonymous, where there's unconditional positive regard given for everybody who walks in the door. I've had a lot of people tell me, about, tell me that over the years. Many people have said that. Well, guess what? At Celebrate Recovery, at Grace Community Church, every Monday night, there is unconditional positive regard for everybody who comes in these doors, and they're loved for Jesus' sake. And why are people so consistently getting transformed at our Celebrate Recovery? It's because the unconditional love in the body of Christ coupled with an environment of spiritual vitality allows people to see their habits and submit those to the Lordship of Christ through the 12 steps. So, abstaining from, from fle fleshly lusts is not something that's impossible. It's something that we can do, and we have the resources to do it here at Grace. And that culture of CR has leaked into other ministries that we have at Grace, including our staff, including our elders, including many of our small groups, including many of our ministry teams. So that's the first command. The first command is a command that's internal. Now, the second command is a command that's more external. Keep your behavior excellent. Keep your behavior excellent. So um, the question is, before whom? Before whom do we keep our behavior excellent? The answer that's most often given is that you've got to keep it excellent before believers. Because if you don't keep your behavior excellent before believers, they might get offended. You don't want to offend believers. So there's a professor that I had in graduate school who uh, came to Christ after a brief career, very successful career in the insurance business. He had built up this wonderful clientele. He comes to Christ. He decides to go back to school. He becomes a, a, a theology professor. And he told this story. He said that when he first came to Christ, he said that uh, he and his wife went to a church whose primary focus was keep her behavior excellent among the believers. And so husband and wife came, and she came. She was dressed 
very beautifully. And one of the women in the church looked at her makeup and looked at her dress, and she said, oh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, they left that church right quick. But that church had a, had, a, had a mindset, and the mindset was keep your behavior excellent among the believers because you don't want to offend anybody. That is not at all what Peter is saying. Not at all what Peter is saying. Peter says keep your behavior excellent among the non-believers. He uses the word, the term Gentiles here. The term Gentiles was a first century word that applied to all Jews. Anybody who was not a Jew was a Gentile. And in the first century, the first century, the Jewish community would look down on the Gentiles. You remember that parable about the tax collector and the sinner? The tax collector says, I mean, the, I mean, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee says, I'm not like all these bad people. I do all these really good things. I don't do all their bad things. I'm not bad like that guy is over there. And that, that guy was unwilling to lift his eyes toward heaven. Be merciful to me, God, the sinner. Because Jesus tells that parable, we know that there was a lot of, of superiority from Jews toward Gentiles. When Peter is using this term, he's saying this term refers to any non-believer you might come in contact with. Keep your behavior excellent before those non-believers. Uh, non any culture, any race, any socioeconomic category, any culture, any background, keep your behavior excellent among everybody you come in contact with, no matter who it is. That's the command. So what does this mean for you? Well, for starters it's important that all of us appreciate that our friends are a stewardship from God. They're not just randomly placed in your path. They're all a stewardship from God. So I was reading this week about the Gallup organization, and it says that Americans on average, this is the study that they did, Americans on average have about 10 close friends. They have about 50 regular friend-slash-acquaintances, and they have about 150 casual people that they know. So 10 close friends, 50 casual friends, about 150 casual acquaintances. If you go to Facebook's research, Facebook says that um, the average user has 155 friends on their, on their platform. When they studied this, only 43 were genuine friends, and these, this Facebook study said that they would trust only four of their friends in a crisis. That's not that many people, right? So you can, you can name probably your sphere of influence rather, rather easily. So in the 1990s, this is a study by Dr. Robin Dunbar. He suggested that humans could only maintain relationships with about 148 people based upon the size of the brain's neocortex. So let's say that you have 150 friends. All of us in this room have 150 each, 150 friends each. How do you, how do you think about those friends? Not just a random group of people, I don't know. I, I don't know how to think about them. No, you should think about them as a stewardship from God. God in his sovereignty has assembled certain people into your life. Don't think of them randomly. Think about them 
as a stewardship from God. And the question is, how do I live my life before those people in such a way that they see something about Jesus? How do I keep my behavior excellent so that they see something about Jesus? Here's another way to think about, about this group. You have to live out your life in a slightly different way depending upon the people in your sphere of influence. So if you're a university professional like Josh McDowell, you're going to live out your faith in Christ in one way. Whenever I've taught for Josh, I'm always impressed with the warm relationships he has with his students. There's a, just a winsomeness about how he interacts with them and a care. I love seeing that. Other people live in the corporate environment. And I, I'm always interested to see there's a, a different culture in the corporate environment. So you live out your faith in Christ with a different sort of a cultural expression. If you're a stay-at-home mom and you're with a lot of other moms and you're going to mops, you're living out your faith in Christ in a slightly different way still. But the idea is that your friends are a stewardship and how you live excellently is going to adjust slightly depending upon the people that you are in contact with. So here's, again, Paul's command is keep your behavior excellent. I think that means at least three things. First, it's behavior that's moral and ethical. It's behavior that's moral and ethical. Do you keep your word? Do you steal? Do you gossip? Do you treat others the way that they would want to be treated? Do you come off with a prideful, arrogant sort of a, an attitude? Um, you know, all cultures have different moral and ethical rules, but they all have moral and ethical rules. And the Christian moral system flows out of the, the person of God. So when we are living out the morality and the ethics of the Old and New Testaments, we are displaying something of the character of the God of the universe. And so first of all, excellent behavior means behavior that's moral and behavior that's ethical. I think it also refers to a winsome relational style. Now, I have to be careful here because some people are extroverts and some people are, are introverts. Some people love being around people. Others are kind of shy around people. Others are naturally outgoing. Others are slightly withdrawn. When I refer to relational style, I'm not referring to introversion versus extroversion. What I'm referring to is the way you reach out to people in the normal events of their life. Do you care about them? Do you smile? If you meet somebody new, do you reach out your hand and shake hands or give them a high five or whatever you do within your culture? When you get with people, do you convey honor and respect or is there a cynicism and a snarky contempt about the way you communicate? Are you thoughtful? Are you proactive when you see a need? Do you encourage? You can be an introvert or an extrovert and you can do all those things I just mentioned really well. So I think about our executive pastor, Sean Conrad, and I. Uh, Sean is more introverted. I'm more extroverted. When I see the way Sean reaches out to members of our staff with thoughtfulness and care, I think Sean's a great leader. I'm a little bit more on the extroverted side. So the way I'm going to do it is going to be slightly different than the way Sean does it. But we're all called to manifest relational excellence. 
and the way that we get the way we we relate to people and that's going to say something about our faith in Christ and then thirdly excellence means you, that you model God's common grace i love this concept of common grace because god shows his love to all humankind through this thing called common grace god's common grace is god providing beauty in the skies a beautiful rainbow clouds rain for the farmer wind for the sailor um beautiful weather for the camper you know it's god providing good things because he's created a beautiful world you were created with five senses your ability to use those five senses is a gift from god whenever you sit down and you you consume a delicious meal you're smelling the smell of onions and and garlic you're smelling the smell of of the roasting meat but those are good smells that's god's common grace that he does that for you and so if you as a believer think how can i be a conduit of god's common grace in my home in my neighborhood in my office with with friends and then you act on that impulse that's a really good thing you might write a, a note of appreciation to a coworker you might express thanks to a friend you might notice something that somebody did and honor them for that these are small things but they are very significant in signaling who you are in Christ so i don't know how many friends you have 5 500 150 i don't know but those friends are a stewardship from god and if you can manifest excellent behavior before them because you're a citizen of heaven and you have kingdom power flowing through you some of them will be attracted to Christ in fact um Paul mentions that uh, Peter mentions that but I I want to sum up here just just for a second so let's let's think is it is it hard to be excellent before non-christian friends remember remember the idea uh we are resident aliens we are under god's eternal care and we're endowed with potential for power you can do this you can manifest excellent behavior before people in your sphere of influence now here are the results the results are at some point they will glorify god and the question is exactly exactly when will this take place peter reveals a problem because he says that these non-believers speak against you and think you're an evil doer and that points out the idea that christianity for the past 2000 years has been looked at as a problem that was true in peter's day that's true in our day we've been seen people in russia where our believing friends in russia were unbelievably misunderstood same thing with our friends in cuba and that's happening in pockets around our culture as well people look at you and think christianity is the problem they're the ones who are screwing things up that's happened for the past 2000 years anything you see today that resembles that well think about it within the past 2000 years because that's that's what's been been happening so if bad things happen it's the christian's fault and you get slandered as the evil doer so what do you do you keep on living out your faith in christ using excellent behavior and at some point at some point notice notice what he says here they will glorify god and peter says on the day of visitation that's not his second coming 
That's the day the Holy Spirit comes to visit them for salvation. So when the Holy Spirit comes, they say, okay, I remember Josh McNall, awesome guy. He lived the life. I remember the kind of way he manifested his faith in Christ. I am going to come to Christ because I remember that follower of Jesus. He was the real deal. So then you became the conduit through whom somebody came to Christ because they saw the quality of your life. When the Holy Spirit comes on the day of his visiting them for salvation, it's very likely he will bring you to mind and you're the one who kind of helped them cross that, that line of faith. That's the expected result. So let's, let's think then about this whole process. The first command is an internal command. Abstain from fleshly lusts. The second command is an external command. Keep your behavior excellent. And the expected result is that people are going to be drawn toward Christ. And so the main focus of this passage is, is this. When we look at non-believers in our life as a stewardship from God and live intentionally before them, some are going to be attracted to the Savior. In the right time, they're going to cross that line of faith. So I love the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured university professor at the University of Syracuse. And she came to Christ and wrote a, a book called the, Unlikely, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Now, she was very immersed in the gay-lesbian lifestyle at the University of Syracuse. Here's what blows me away about her story. The way she came to Christ was through a pastor of a very small conservative church in Syracuse, New York, who took the time to get to know her and love her for Christ's sake. Uh, this was not, you know, an uber-cool young pastor with spiky hair. Th th this was an older pastor who was just living out his faith in Christ. And he and his wife would invite her over to dinner and just listen. And when it came time for her to come to faith in Christ, it was because of this couple that she realized Christianity is the real deal. It's a perfect example of exactly what Peter is talking about. <clears throat> so some key takeaways. How do, how do we grow in this ability? Well, first of all, please get clear about the gospel message. Because if you're living out your faith in Christ, the chances are sometimes somebody's going to come and, and you're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. And here's the cool thing about the gospel. Jesus begins to talk about the gospel in the gospels. And the gospel in the gospels was the idea that in me, in Jesus, you have access to the kingdom. You have access to the power of the Father. You have access to a relationship with the Father. Paul becomes much more specific after the resurrection. And based upon Paul's words, I think we can, we can express the gospel in 25 words or less, and here's how I would express it. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead to provide eternal forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe. 
That, that's the essence of the gospel message. But I'd, I'd urge you to get clear about that message because if you're living the life, someday somebody is going to say, so tell me what it is you believe. And if your life is different, why is your life different? And I would hope you have a story to tell and a gospel to, to explain. Because I promise you, if you live the life, you're going to be asked the question. Second uh, takeaway is this. Esteem the process of evangelism. Now, the reason why I say that is because there was a report that came out just a few months ago by, uh, by George Barna, and it said this, half of practicing Christian millennials say that evangelism is wrong. And that's not a very good title, because that doesn't accurately reflect what was happening. The, the news is actually very good news, because when Barna interviewed practicing Christian millennials, what he said was, they're very equipped to share their faith. That surprised him. He said, they're very equipped to answer the questions non-Christians ask. That surprised him. So that's, that's like really good news. So the title could be, Millennials Feel Equipped to Share Their Faith. But here was the problem. The problem was when asked about sharing their faith, they said, I just don't know if it's right for me to share the gospel with somebody from a different religion because of the pressures of our culture and the political correctness that is so, so much a part of our culture. They were going, I, I, just, I, just don't know, I just don't know if that's right or not. A lot of people feel that way. Millennials, boomers, every, a lot of people feel that way. Like, okay, I'm going to share the gospel, but man, they're going to be mad at me and I'm going to look like I'm being politically incorrect. That's why I would say, please esteem this process. Jesus said, make disciples. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. This is a really important task that God has given us to do. And then, uh, and then the third one here, third takeaway is this, identify people in your sphere of influence. Um, look, all of us have a sphere of influence. Um, and you could probably, if you thought about it, you probably could enumerate it. In fact, it's probably in your phone. I mean, take out your phone and look at your contact list. Who's in your contact list? Of all the people in your contact list, I bet you've got a core of 25, 75, 125 of people. You could say, those are my friends. Who are the people you send Christmas cards to? Maybe those are your friends. But the idea is identify the 10 most important people in your sphere of influence who don't know Christ and start praying for them. And then as you pray for them, next takeaway is identify elements of excellent behavior that they need to see in you. What does person A need to see in me? What does person B need to see in me? Is there something that I could do to manifest excellent behavior to, to this person? Have I been treating somebody poorly? I need to, I need to tune it up a little bit. And then my, my final takeaway is this. Assess who might be open to an invitation. You know, one of the really easy ways of helping somebody move toward Christ is by inviting them someplace. So we have this new series coming up on September the 9th called Hashtag Gratitude. And we're going to do some things with that series that are going to be really fun. It's going to be a series on prayer, but the focus is going to be on thanksgiving, on gratitude, the kind of prayers that express thanks to God. And so this would be a great 
time for you to invite them to Grace Community Church or invite somebody to celebrate recovery or invite somebody to your small group. You have friends in your sphere of influence who are ready for an invitation to move into a place where they will feel unconditionally esteemed by fellow believers. Do that. Get in the habit of doing that and thinking that way. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Thanks, Aaron. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we could all gather here. And as we go back out into the world, help everybody here to just take something away from this message. Help us to let it impact our lives in some way. Bless everyone as we head out and help us all to get home safe and just have a great week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.